0: The Jodcast, coming at you like hailbop, Bob with Adam Averson, Megan Argo, John Field, Leo Huckvale, Stuart Harper, and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, October 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Adam, and joining me in the studio this month are Leo and Stuart. Hello! Hello. So, in the show, this time we've got Dr David Moss talking about the magnetic fields of spiral galaxies, Dr David Jess talking about the Sun and its corona, we find out what you can see in the night sky with Ian Morrison and John Field, but first, before all of that, here's Megan Argo with this month's news.
1: In the news this month, measuring the size of a black hole, supernova mechanisms, results from the European Planetary Science Congress, and Hubble's extreme deep field. Most galaxies appear to host a supermassive black hole in the centre, billions of times more massive than a single star. Many of these black holes, like the one in our own Milky Way, are currently quiet, but others are far more active, swallowing vast amounts of gas, dust, planets and stars, and generating so much light that they can outshine the rest of their host galaxy. Some of the more active black holes also produce spectacular jets of radiation and high-energy particles, which can extend for hundreds of thousands of light-years and move at speeds close to that of light. While the large-scale structure of these jets agrees with predictions, the small-scale structures predicted at the black hole's event horizon, where the jet is launched, have yet to be detected. Since black holes are small, and galaxies with such active black holes are located far from the Earth, there is not a single telescope which is capable of making images with enough detail to test these theories. But now, a team led by Shep Dolman at Haystack Observatory in the US, has used a collection of radio telescopes to peer down into the heart of M87, an elliptical galaxy located 50 million light-years away, which hosts a black hole some six billion times more massive than the Sun. Around active black holes lies a disk of material, known as an accretion disk, which spirals in towards the event horizon, the point beyond which nothing can escape from the intense gravitational field, not even light. This disk rotates, with material within it moving ever closer to the event horizon, before finally being pulled in, never to be seen again. Einstein's theory of relativity, our best description of gravity, says that the mass and spin of a black hole determine the closest possible orbit before matter gets pulled in, and it is this closest orbit where the jet in M87 is launched. By studying the black hole in detail, Einstein's theory can be tested under some of the most extreme conditions in the universe. But understanding what goes on so close to the black hole requires very high resolution observations, so Dolman's team linked together three telescopes using a technique known as interferometry which allows widely separated telescopes to be used together, as if they were one giant telescope with a diameter equal to the distance between them. Using telescopes in Hawaii, Arizona and California, all operating at a frequency of 230 gigahertz a wavelength of 1.3 millimeters), the astronomers were able to measure the innermost orbit of the accretion disk for the first time. They found it to be only 5.5 times the size of the black hole's event horizon. According to our understanding of physics, This size suggests that the accretion disk is spinning in the same direction as the black hole, the first direct observation to confirm theories of how black holes power jets from the centres of galaxies. The team plans to expand its telescope array, known as the Event Horizon Telescope, adding in radio dishes in Chile, Europe, Mexico, Greenland and Antarctica, in order to obtain even more detailed pictures of black holes in the future. One class of supernova, those known as type Ia or thermonuclear supernovae, are thought to occur in binary star systems containing a white dwarf, a main-sequence star which has run out of hydrogen, and evolved to become a small, dense star with a mass about 1.4 times that of the Sun, together with a companion that is either a red giant, subgiant, main-sequence star, or another white dwarf. The white dwarf accumulates material from the companion star until the density of material on the star's surface becomes extreme enough that a nuclear explosion takes place. If the companion star is a giant, subgiant, or main-sequence star, the build-up of material is slow, and the companion will survive the explosion, remaining behind after the light from the violent destruction of the white dwarf has faded. In the other scenario, where the companion star is also a white dwarf, known as the double degenerate case, the two white dwarfs would merge before the explosion, leaving no companion behind. Both mechanisms are thought to occur, but which is more common is an open question. There have been several searches for remnant companions before, stars remaining after the explosion in the case where the companion is a giant, subgiant, or main-sequence star. One possible case where the companion star remained is the supernova observed by Tycho Brahe in 1572, although this result is not certain and has been debated. More recently, observations have restricted surviving companions to small, main-sequence stars, ruling out giant companions. Now, in an article published in Nature during September a team led by Jane González-Hernández of the Instituto de Astrofisica de Canarias, report the result of a search for surviving companions to the progenitor of a supernova seen in the year 1006 AD and find no sign of a former companion. Using images and spectra, the team examined all the stars within four arc minutes of the position of the supernova. Many of the nearby stars are either too close or too far away from the Earth to be associated with the explosion, while others show no signs of higher levels of heavy chemical elements that are produced in supernova explosions. Together with previous results, this new study suggests that fewer than 20% of Type 1a supernovae occur through the single degenerate channel, that is, through the slow accumulation of mass from a single star. The more common trigger, it seems, is the rapid breakup of a smaller orbiting white dwarf. September saw 600 of the world's leading planetary scientists gathering in Madrid for the European Planetary Science Conference. Presentations covered everything from planets, moons, comets and asteroids in our own solar system, to exoplanets orbiting other stars, and even astrobiology and astrochemistry. As well as early results from the Curiosity rover, currently making its way across Gale Crater on Mars, one presentation focused on subsurface liquid water on Jupiter's moon Europa. Europa's icy surface has been known about since the Voyager spacecraft visited the Jovian system in the 1970s. In the 1990s, more detailed images obtained by the Galileo probe showed much more detail, and it became clear that the Moon's surface is continually changing as the ice cracks and moves. It is thought that the Moon is made mainly of rock and iron, with a water shell sitting between the rocky interior and the solid ice surface. But the question of just how thick this liquid layer is, and how close it is to the surface, is one that is much debated. The heat maintaining the subsurface liquid comes as a byproduct of the continual gravitational tugging from Jupiter, the same mechanism responsible for the high levels of volcanic activity on another of Jupiter's moons, Io. At the European Planetary Science Congress, Clara Kalosova from the University of Nantes and Charles University in Prague presented research suggesting that water does not stay in a liquid state near Europa's surface for longer than a few tens of thousands of years, the blink of an eye in geological terms. By mathematically modeling mixtures of liquid water and solid ice under different conditions, she found that, due to factors such as density and viscosity differences, pockets of liquid water close to the surface would migrate rapidly downwards through partially molten ice and eventually reach the subsurface ocean. So, any future missions to explore Europa's ocean may need to dig very deep. And finally, the Hubble Space Telescope has taken many spectacular pictures since it was launched in 1990, including the Hubble Deep Field a long exposure of a totally unremarkable patch of sky in the constellation of Ursa Major. This image covered such a small patch of sky that it contained only a handful of foreground stars from the Milky Way, but it also contained thousands of distant galaxies, some at extremely large distances, such that we are observing them as they were when the universe was a tiny fraction of its current age. Some years later, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field was created, a million-second exposure covering another small patch of sky, about one-tenth the diameter of the full moon. This time in the constellation of Fornax, this image contains some 10,000 galaxies, down to a magnitude of 30. Now an even deeper image has been made. Observed in part of the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, the extreme deep field is the product of 2,000 individual images, and a total exposure time of 2 million seconds. Despite its smaller size on the sky, the XDF contains about 5,500 galaxies. Some of them are so distant, the light we detect now left them when the universe was a mere 450 million years old. Many of the galaxies in this image are seen at a time when they were still forming, accumulating material from their surroundings and forming stars at a prodigious rate. The new image will be used to study how galaxies are formed and evolved over the history of the universe.
2: Thanks for that, Megan. In the first of this episode's interviews, Liz talks to Dr David Moss about modelling and observing the magnetic fields of spiral galaxies.
3: Hello, this is Liz, and I'm here with Dr. David Moss from the School of Mathematics from the University of Manchester. He just gave a talk um, about modelling magnetic fields in the spiral galaxies. Hello, David. Thank you for being with us.
4: Nice to be here.
3: Hello. Um, so, tell us a little bit about this. Um, how do you model the magnetic fields of spiral galaxies? Well,
4: the first thing you really need is a, some good observations to compare your modelling with, because... I have a feeling that all astrophysical modeling is only as good as its comparison with observations. Now, our idea is that magnetic fields in spiral galaxies are the result of something we call dynamo theory. Dynamo theory seems to be quite, almost universally important in magnetic astrophysics. For example, it seems to account for the magnetic field of the Sun and how it reverses as seems to account for magnetic fields of a number of cool stars which are rather similar to the Sun. But he's also believed that it accounts for magnetic fields in spiral galaxies. The basic idea is that in all of these objects they rotate and the rotation depends on distance from the rotation axis. That's what we call differential rotation. These objects also are turbulent, or they maybe have convective motions in, essentially bubbles of fluid move around in a quasi-random manner. As these bubbles rise, then they are twisted by the effects of rotation, in a similar way to effects in the Earth's atmosphere that generate cyclonic and anti-cyclonic weather systems, the Coriolis effect, if you've heard of that. It can be shown, uh, has been known now for about 50 or 60 years, that the effects of the differential rotation and these rising uh, gas elements being twisted by the rotation jointly can amplify an existing magnetic field and can also give it large-scale structure. For this mechanism to work, you need... A small initial field, but the idea is that when this small initial field is present, it is under suitable conditions can be amplified to a larger field, which is what we think we observe in these objects.
3: Okay, so you start with, so you have a galaxy, and you start with very small structure field, and then you amplify that field. Exactly. Okay, to make to make a large structure. To make a
4: large scale field, which is hopefully it looks like what we observe
3: yeah okay so so observationally what you what you see is so how do you observe these magnetic fields
4: the magnetic fields are almost entirely observed by radio astronomers they look at radio obs- observations which are polarized uh and they're polarized by electrons cosmic ray electrons encountering a magnetic field. And this information in the, in the polarized uh, emissions can tell us something about the strength of the magnetic field. And But more importantly, for our purposes, the direction. We can get more uh, detailed information about the direction of the field also.
3: Yeah. And so what you observe is mainly that the magnetic field follows the spiral arms, right?
4: In many cases, we see the magnetic field approximately follows the shape of the spiral arms if the spiral structure is strong enough. Right. Explaining why this is is one of the key challenges at the moment.
3: Okay. And why do you think that is?
4: Why do you you have this coincidence? Yeah. Uh, It's... uh, It's the problem is not yet resolved. There are different, subtle differences between the properties of the gas in galaxies which lies in the spiral arms and what lies between the spiral arms. And it may just it may be, and has been thought in the past that this is all that is necessary. That with sufficiently good modelling, this will explain it. I I personally have the feeling that there are at least two other effects that are important one is that in galaxies with strong spiral structure the so-called grand design galaxies there is besides the rotational velocities there is also there are also streaming velocities more or less parallel to the arms these must have, these velocities must have an effect on the spiral, on the field structure and its simple modelling some time ago showed that this could have the right sort of effect though it was not sufficient to explain all that was going on. Another idea is that disordered gas motions, turbulence, are preferentially present in the spiral arms and will locally distort the magnetic field. But the spiral arms do not stay always in the same part of the gas. So as the spiral arm moves, it it will leave behind this disordered disorder field, which can then be organised by the dynamo action into a smooth field, which occurs preferentially between the arms. Okay. And this is, is it's a relatively novel idea, but at the moment it looks quite promising.
3: Very interesting. Okay, so so then you were you were talking about um having this this initial field um and you're modeling as a star forming regions that they have very um small magnetic field right
4: the star forming regions may actually generate quite strong fields okay uh, but this length scale is small they do not have any large scale organization okay so the key thing is how to Get from these small scale disordered fields into large scale ordered fields, yes. the fields with, 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 whose length scale is typically close to that of the galaxy itself.
3: Yeah, which is roughly or
4: 10 20 kiloparsecs. kiloparsecs.
3: Yeah, and the star forming regions are
4: Or uh, a few hundred parsecs.
3: Yeah, okay. So with these star forming regions, you have. So you put an input of star forming regions, but then you, you so you trigger that the dynamo effect will take the small length to a bigger scale. Yes, the, the
4: whole whole idea about the dynamo is that it it converts small scale field into large scale field.
3: Yeah, it's but then the, you mentioned you also add more star forming regions in between.
4: Well, this is a a new development. Okay. Is that rather than just starting with this mechanism, we it's non ongo- star forming regions. Are continually uh, activated, yeah. ca- uh, carry they uh, persist through their lifetime and then die, yeah. and each all these things all the time will be generating small scale field and leaving it behind for the dynamo to act on. Yeah. And this this is why we think the mechanism of the spiral of the small scale field being present in the star the spiral arms works because you need for that it to be continually injected into the spiral arms.
3: Yeah, it was one of the things you mentioned that I was um, a bit interested about. Um, you said that less star-forming, in one of the models, mm-hmm. less star-forming regions creates more open spiral arms. Have you yeah. seen, compar- like, compare this with observations? No, or?
4: we haven't yet. No, it's, uh, okay. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, obviously this is all quite new work and we've, I'm, I'm uh, trying to collaborate with People are pretty busy than myself in the sense that they're still employed, <laughs> and, uh, and they have other things to do. So we're making slow progress on this. Okay.
3: Okay. Right. So to, you mentioned two different theories that could explain this large structure field. Mm. The, was the fossil field or the dynamo origin, right? So could you explain mm. a little bit more about these two theories?
4: Well, the idea of the fossil field theory, which probably was the earlier one, is that in the early stages of the, of the university's formation somehow or other very weak magnetic fields were generated and there are a number of mechanisms to do this that have been suggested but most of them produce extremely weak fields uh, the strongest but perhaps quite unlikely mechanism would produce a field of a trillionth of a gauss okay. uh, but given we have this, this field present, as the galaxy forms it will sweep up the exist, pre-existing field and galaxies do not rotate uniformly and therefore they will wind the field up into a spiral. Now, As this, the winding up carries on, the spiral gets tighter and tighter and what is called the pitch angle of the spiral gets smaller and smaller. pitch angle of a circle is zero, So we get pretty close to that. Uh, But we observe pitch angles which are about 10 or 20 degrees, which is maybe even more, maybe even 30 degrees. So this is a bad prediction of fossil theory. There are other more technical objections, such as the overall geometry of the field looks like it will be wrong. It's difficult to explain that without a piece of paper (laughs) Okay Uh, If you take the simplest form of dynamo theory then it automatically gives pitch angles which are approximately of the right size without any fine tuning and also it gives the correct geometry approximately the correct geometry So the two together are strong arguments for some form of dynamo theory being appropriate Okay
3: the the other thing that you mentioned in the talk uh, was the reverse field is yes. that has been observed
4: the in the milky way our own galaxy we there with very high probability there is what is called a large scale field reversal that is if you try to map the field of the galaxy as you move radially the c- circular component this component in the Tangential direction changes, reverses sign. And this, with high probability, is claimed to occur at least once in our galaxy. There are claims that it occurs more often, but uh, these are increasingly uncertain. Now that can be explained by certain models, but the problem is that such reversals are not seen in any external galaxy. It's hard to believe that the Milky Way is unique, yeah. uh, so the question is why do we not observe these? And it may be that there are various effects due to the fact we are looking down into the disks of these galaxies and not seeing quite the same component of the magnetic field as we see in the Milky Way when we are already in the disk. So it's possible that external galaxies could have reversals in the disk only but they are obscured by magnetic fields that lie above and below the disk.
5: Yeah.
3: Thank you very much, David, for the interview, and hope we can get more ideas of this, and you can let us know later.
4: <laughs> uh, I'll be grateful for some ideas from you as well.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Cheers.
6: Thanks for that, Liz. In our second and final interview this episode, Dr. David Jess talks to Melanie about the sun's heating processes in the corona.
7: Hi, I'm here today talking to Dr. David Jess from Queen's University in Belfast. Hi.
6: Hello. So
7: you've been giving us a very interesting talk about solar physics. Always seems a bit interesting to me in the sense that, well, it's something I'm not familiar with, but also the sun is so close by. Feel like, you know, we know everything about it and it's this big ball of fire in the sky and, and that's it. But listening to your talk, there's so much behind it. Like you showed this image of a smooth surface of the sun, but it's, it's not actually smooth. Can you describe like the different surfaces of the sun?
5: Sure. I mean, of course, one of the things is you, you look up at the sun through many, many different telescopes and even with a protected naked eye and you see that it looks like this smooth, ball of of plasma. Um, The the thing is, once you actually start zooming into that surface, you start to see a whole range of different dynamic phenomena that you would not have otherwise seen. Um, Some of these phenomena, I suppose the best analogy really is if you think of it as a, a bubbling cauldron. Of plasma and when you zoom in close to the surface of the sun you can see what we call convection so that's the hot plasma rising up from the inside of the sun it begins to expand cool and then drops back down into the sun under its own immense gravity Um, and this this bubbling convective process is what we call granulation and it basically just looks like a bubbling pot of water.
7: And is that what brings the heat up to the sun and what gives the sun the heat it Imits?
5: Of course, yeah. I mean, the surface of the sun, um, radiates with a temperature around 6,000 degrees. And the core of the sun, of course, burns a nuclear fusion reaction temperatures far exceeding that. But a lot of the energy is brought up through convective processes, um, to the surface of the sun where we see it and we are able to view it with our naked eye. And that is the surface of the sun, the photosphere that we're typically familiar with.
7: Okay. But there's different levels because from what I, I saw and talked to you, you have this surface, this photosphere, but there's things above basically, that are further up than the surface. Sure.
5: I mean, the the natural thing that we can see with our naked eye is just the, the bare surface of the sun. And that is where we get the most of our light coming from. As we move away from the surface of the sun, which is called the photosphere, we come up to a height maybe around... One or 2,000 kilometers above that, and it's called the chromosphere. And this is, again, a very tenuous, a very dynamic part of the atmosphere. And the temperature begins to decrease, as you would expect, because it's very similar to what radiative processes that you would experience in a day-to-everyday life. Um, I suppose, again, the, an analogy that can be used is if you think of the sun as a, as a fire that you would use on a cold winter's day, the further you move away from that fire, the colder you're going to feel. However, at atmospheric layers above the chromosphere, we really begin to experience physics that we don't quite understand what's going on, the temperature doesn't continue to decrease. In fact, the temperature actually begins to increase. And it doesn't increase on the order of a few tens or even a few hundreds of degrees. It increases by several orders of magnitude, going from the order of 5,000 degrees well up to multi-million degree temperatures in the corona.
7: How is that possible?
5: Well, that's one of the mysteries of solar physics that has been studied for the last 50 years at least. Um, I mean, we're very familiar with the likes of the solar corona, which we see um, during very beautiful solar eclipses. And this corona has actually heated to temperatures far in excess of 1 million degrees. And that's one of the crucial areas of research at the minute in solar physics, is how do we come up with a star that is emitting at its surface a temperature of around 6,000 degrees, and how can that rapidly ramp upwards to well over a million, a matter of a few thousand kilometers away?
7: Is it over a million over the entire surface of the corona, or just by
5: points? No, the corona in generally, is heated to well over one million degrees. There are certain isolated parts of the corona which can be heated in excess of one million degrees. In fact, during some flare events, which are quite popular at the minute, and you see a lot of these in the media, where the sun has erupted and caused these massive eruptions that we can experience the effects of on Earth, the heating caused by these solar flares can push the temperatures exceeding 20 million degrees.
7: And... Is this temperature decreasing after the corona again? Or is it is it just kind of a layer of sudden increase in temperature that then decreases again?
5: Yeah, so eventually what happens is the corona is essentially the last shell of the sun. And that is whenever we have these very extreme temperatures. And it's this corona which actually drives very important artifacts that we experience on a day-to-day basis here on Earth. Things such as the solar wind. Now, this solar wind is driven by the sun's corona. And these particles, accelerated particles, stream their way across interplanetary space. And whenever they interact with our own magnetic canopy or surrounding our Earth, we get the northern lights and the aurora that we associate with the sun's uh, dynamic phenomena.
7: Hmm. And you talked a lot in your presentation about magnetic fields. So the the sun is also has also magnetic fields just like we have on Earth, right? How important is the magnetic field in the sun?
5: The sun demonstrates a lot of different magnetic phenomenon. Um, you have these uh, large scale sunspots that often you can see in pictures of the sun's surface which display themselves as, as these massive dark regions which extend around the surface of the sun. However that's not the only extent of magnetic fields on the surface of the Sun. We have these other small-scale structures, structures that can be less than a couple of hundred kilometers in diameter, and these are what we call magnetic bright points. They're these immensely bright little structures on the surface of the Sun, but they still have intrinsically large magnetic field strengths, often exceeding a thousand Gauss, similar to coming up to the sort of standards you would get in a modern MRI machine. And because they're so small in size, they find themselves that they can be very easily manipulated and pushed around by the convective turbulent motions on the sun's surface. And it's these motions of these small-scale magnetic elements which really may um, have very important consequences for the heating of this outer solar atmosphere.
7: Okay, so it would be this the changes in these little spots that are on the surface of the sun that would bring the heat to the corona, which is much further
5: away well, you can imagine that these little magnetic bright points, because their field magnetic field strengths are so strong, they will have a magnetic field line that extends far away from the sun's surface. I think one of the best analogies you can imagine is if you take it back to a, a very simplistic um, school experiment where you have a, a bar magnet and you sprinkle some iron filings on top of that, and you can clearly see the pattern that the iron filings take around the, the magnetic field lines. And the same sort of thing happens in the sun. We have ionized plasma in the surface of the sun. And this ionized plasma likes to adhere to the magnetic field lines propagating and manipulating and emerging through its surface. So you can imagine these strong magnetic field lines will extend from the surface up through the chromosphere and way out into the corona. And the plasma then is confined to these field lines. So if there's any buffeting, any dynamic motions which occur on the surface, it will be felt up in the corona.
7: Do you mean that it's kind of like the change in the surface propagating like just like a wave or something like more like a, a straight line? or
5: Well, the field lines will tend to occupy probably curved structures out into the upper solar atmosphere. But of course, if there's an, all of a sudden a, a dynamic or very impulsive motion towards the the foot point of one of these magnetic field lines, it can cause deformations in the magnetic field line, which may result in a wave being generated and therefore propagating upwards. I mean, I think if you think of this as a as a slinky, which is extended quite a long distance and you, you knock one end of it, you can clearly see a wave propagating along the slinky as it moves to the opposite end. And that's exactly what we think is happening on the surface of the sun. We have these field lines extending up into the corona. We bump the field line perhaps at the bottom, which carries a waveform form up to the upper ends, where it then may interact with some part of the upper solar atmosphere, releasing its energy in the form of heat.
7: When you say releasing its energy, it's like releasing the energy from the motion of the wave into energy. Exactly.
5: Because eventually, I mean, these waves will have to cease... Um, their movement cease their propagation at some point, and by damping the wave, i.e., removing its energy in the form of a side-to-side motion, you can then convert that motion into heat, which will then locally heat um the surrounding plasma in the corona.
7: How How is that uh, phenomenon would be related to the actual size? Or altitude of the corona, is there like a special length at, width at which this kind of wave would lose energy? Or
5: That's a very difficult and actually ongoing question that is that solar physicists are trying to answer. Um, there are many different types of mechanisms which may promote the damping of wave motion and re- allow it to release energy in the form of heat. The problems that we currently don't know is, what is the dominant mechanism that allows the conversion of this wave energy into heat? And also, at what particular height does this most readily occur, and over what sort of spatial scales does it take for full conversion to occur.
7: Okay, that's very interesting. There's one last thing that I'd like to talk about. So as I was saying at the beginning, it's the sun, it's close by, you know, how come we don't know more about it? How come we don't observe it more? And something you mentioned in your presentation was about the solar observatory. And, you know, right now we have mirrors of one meter diameter, which to me, I'm, I'm an extragalactic astronomer. It's teeny tiny, it's small, and just like this is really big for the sun. And I d- it didn't occur to me that you could have problems with bigger telescope than that. Do you want to expand on this?
5: Sure, I mean, one of the things is, for nighttime astronomers, you're looking at quite faint sources, and of course they would not be faint if you were up as close to them as we are to the sun, but because they're so many, many light years away, they do appear very faint, and therefore you can use the large telescopes to collect all of the light that's given to you by those objects, and be able to sort of do your analysis on that. The problem that we have with the sun is, because it's so close by, it provides us with a lot of photons, a lot of light energy. And the problem is, as we make our telescopes bigger and bigger, we collect more and more of this energy. And it causes immense problems with trying to cool these telescopes. Um, At the minute, as you said, some of our telescopes are really around the one meter mark. We have pushed in recent years up to around maybe 1.6, but they're still a long way short of sort of everyday use nighttime telescopes.
7: Would it make like, the electronics melt or something.
5: Well, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is, I mean, you're collecting so much energy that your optics and the building that you're you will be containing all of your optics and your elements and your mirrors will be placed under a huge bombardment of this energy, and and very very little would survive, I think.
7: So I guess it's a bit like having like a, a magnifying glass in the sun and trying to light a fire.
5: Exactly. I mean,
7: like a, a gigantic magnifying glass.
5: <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I think a lot of ongoing work for these large aperture solar telescopes is really trying to focus on, can we create a mechanism which will alleviate this excess energy, allow us to be able to collect enough light so that we can do our science, achieve our science goals, but at the same time, not adversely affect the inner workings of the telescope.
7: Cool. There was also something about time frame on which you want to take your data, because I, I guess... Changes that we see in stars outside of the solar system and extragalactic, it's in like, you know, maybe seconds, milliseconds for some pulsars. But for the sun, you need, like, there's a lot of changes in very small time. Can our, the electronics we have right now handle this or?
5: Yes. At the minute, many areas of research in solar physics are concerned with very small scale dynamic motions within the sun's atmosphere. And these can evolve on timescales much less than one second. So it is paramount for us to be able to observe these on sub-second timescales. Current instrumentation can do the job very well on these smaller telescopes, and telescopes up to around 1.6 meters in size. The real problem will come along when we start to move up towards these massive four-meter-sized solar telescopes, because if we want to maximize our spatial resolution, We're therefore going to also need much larger imaging detectors to be able to maintain a similar field of view size, but obtaining this much higher spatial resolution, which then means we're going to be having many more pixels. The equivalent at the minute is we've only have really one to two megapixel CCD cameras that we're using. But in the future, we're going to be trying to bump this up to around 16 megapixel cameras. And that may not sound like a a difficult problem, but when you're trying to push the boundaries and trying to take frame rates on the order of 100 frames per second at 16 megapixels, that's when you really start to run into into problems. And particularly with the the acquisition, the handling and the processing of such large data volumes.
7: Like we did make huge files of data that you have to like put into computers very, very fast. The computing part is kind of like sluggish compared to what you need.
5: I think one of the main problems is you think a, a typical 16 megapixel image would be on the order of 30, 32 megabytes in size. If you're trying to accumulate 100 of those every second, data rates are going to be pushing gigabytes per second, Um, which not only being able to transfer that from the camera to a hard drive to save is a problem, but also then what do you do once you've acquired images for an hour, two hours, three hours? And that's only assuming one camera. If you have multiple cameras, you're going to end up with volumes that are so vast that it's it, it at the minute it seems impossible to deal with that situation. So... Yeah. A lot of ongoing work is to try and process the data on the fly. So that's real-time processing to allow you to process the data, do all your your scientific normalizations and calibrations of that data while it is being saved to disk. So therefore, you don't have to do that later. And it also will mean then that the volume of data that the user has to take home will be much reduced.
7: Yeah, because I guess if you don't do that, you'll end up with... The building of the telescope, the building of the astronomers, and the building of the hard drive in which you store the data. Yes,
5: and as time goes on, that building for hard drives will get bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs)
7: Well, that was really interesting. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
7: Bye.
0: Bye. Thanks for that, Melanie. Now we come to that part of the show where we fit in
2: all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the ends. So I mentioned in the May 2012 Jogcast that NASA astronauts were going to undergo cave training with ESA in exchange with NASA after ESA astronauts visited an underwater training facility off the coast of Florida. Well, they've recently completed their cave training expedition, but the ESA astronauts have been blogging about their experience. And the the expedition involved astronauts from the USA, so NASA, Russia, China and Japan, as well as from ESA, and they were learning to cooperate as a multicultural team. So in a recent post on their blog, which go and check out, there's some interesting stuff on there, in a recent post they've been having fun with long exposure photography in the caves where it's completely dark so you can open the shutter on camera and then you can do all sorts of interesting things with the torch That's so, so you should cool. go and check that out <laughs> and of course mm-hmm. vital to being
6: an yes. astronaut yeah. <laughs> is is this all about uh, training to go to Mars is that the point of going um, to the
2: cave? i don't think it's specific to Mars i think it's more that they're trying to they're trying to learn sort of teamwork and things and getting on with each other and it's so, like if a you're, work day out, sort of. yeah, well, I mean, if you're in, if you're in like an intense environment, like a cave where, you know, you've got to be careful and you've got to keep everyone together and make sure you don't lose anyone in the dark, you know, I think it's a, these are important kills. Uh, yeah, for better. space.
8: <laughs> uh.
2: So, uh, in my own then, um,
6: I'm going to talk about the, uh, comet, which was discovered by the ISON network of telescopes, which is a, uh, a new comet, which they predict should be arriving, uh, into the skies, sort of around the end of November in 2013. So a bit of a wait, but it's well worth it because they reckon that it should be actually brighter than the moon when it arrives. And uh, it'll probably be, in fact, the brightest one since, um, I think, well, brighter than Hale Bop in 1997. So one of the brightest ones going. Yeah, Yeah.
2: exactly. (laughs) I think sometimes these predicted brightnesses for comets, though, are sometimes a bit optimistic, but definitely if they're sort of predicting it that high, it'll be a good one.
6: Yeah, it'll definitely be get, worth getting out to see. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think uh, they also said, if you want to, you can uh, observe it with binoculars in summer of 2013, sort of oh, the cool. earliest you be able to see it. And then uh, also, if you've got a massive telescope, you should be able to observe it sometime at the beginning of 2013. Of course, if you've got a network of telescopes, you can observe it now, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think they many people have one. Yeah, no, yeah. not
0: everyone has one in the back garden. <laughs> <laughs> so, I really wanted to start my uh, odd end with uh, Is There Life on Mars? and then break into a full rendition of the Bowie song, but I have a cold, so I won't do that, so you've been spared. What I sat down and watched this morning during when I was eating my breakfast was that the Mars rover Curiosity has found what the, the, the team believed to be uh, dried stream beds on Mars. So, they found a bunch of uh, rounded pebbles and some conglomerate rock type protrusions uh, which are very similar to what you'd see in a dried up river bed on Earth uh, adding further weight to uh, what uh, orbiting satellites of Mars have seen that look like uh, river flows and uh, streams and things so the uh, the, the scientists are, are, are working on this at the moment and they think from what they've seen they should be able to predict how deep the water was and how fast it was flowing which is really impressive I think uh, to be doing sort of geology on a planet where you aren't so <laughs> it's very very cool uh there was a picture on the uh universe today article uh, comparing a picture that curiosity had taken on one side and something similar on earth and if you didn't know that they were from different planets you'd assume that they were both taken on earth which i thought was really impressive so yeah i i'm always incredibly impressed with what m- the uh mars rover send back and curiosity is shaping up to be as just as impressive as a spirit and opportunity So, from the Mars Curiosity to satisfying your curiosity at what you can see in the night sky this month, here's Ian Morrison. The
9: October night sky. The nice thing about October is you don't have to wait up quite so late before it gets dark. And also you have the opportunity, during one evening, of seeing the two most beautiful regions of the sky, I think. First of all, after sunset, over in the west you have the constellations of Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila with their three bright stars, Deneb, Vega and Altair, forming the Summer Triangle. If you go about a third of the way up from Altair to Vega, there's a dark part of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift, and you should be able to spot a little thing called Brocci's Cluster. It's often called the Coat Hanger. It looks like an upside-down Coat Hanger. And not far up to the left of that is the star Albireo, the head of the swan or the base of the cross, the northern cross made up of uh, five of the stars of Cygnus. It's a lovely double star, and with a small telescope you see a beautiful colour contrast, a sort of a gold and a blue. In the south, in the evening, is the great square of Pegasus, the upside-down wind horse. Starting at the top left-hand star of the square, which is called Alpharats, it's actually Alpha Andromedae, if you go one star to the left, tilt round to the right a bit to the next bright star, then turn sharp right, go one star, and in the same distance again, you'll come across the lovely galaxy in Andromeda, M31. It's even visible to your unaided eye on a really dark, clear night with no moon. But binoculars should show it fairly well. A bit more of a challenge, which needs good binoculars and a really dark, transparent night, is to find the third largest galaxy in our local group. It's called M33. If you start at M31, come back through the two stars, where you turn sharp right, and carry on about the same distance, sweep in that area, and you may see just a little faint patch brighter than the surrounding sky. And then, of course, rising over in the east during the later evening, is the constellation of Taurus. That's in fact got the bright planet Jupiter between the horns as October starts. And then later on during the night, Orion rises. Higher up, of course, you've got almost overhead Cassiopeia. And if you drop down, you're running along the Milky Way, towards Perseus, you actually find a little bit of a fuzzy spot with your unaided eye, with binoculars or a telescope, you can see it's actually what's called the double cluster, two lovely clusters of stars. Well, what about the planets? Well, we'll start with Jupiter. It's now rising at about 10pm, in fact, by about 8pm by the end of October, but often best seen, in fact, I saw it beautifully the other morning, before dawn, about 60 degrees above the horizon in the south. As I said earlier, it's in the constellation of Taurus the Bull, between the two horns as it stands. Now, Jupiter's just starting its retrograde motion, which means it's moving westwards through the heavens, and that carries on uh, for quite a while, in fact, until the middle of February. And so it's actually going to go back closer to the Hyades cluster where it was a few weeks ago. Over the month, its angular size is increasing from about 43 to 47 arc seconds. So there's lots of detail to see on the surface, and you should pick up up to four of the Galilean moons. Well, Saturn passes behind the Sun on the 25th of October, so you can't expect to see it well this month. But during about the first week, it would be seen, in principle, just a few degrees above the west-southwest horizon, about half an hour after sunset. You'll probably need binoculars to spot the magnitude 0.7 planet but I think perhaps better to wait until it reappears on the other side of the sun. Now, Mercury. Well, we normally see Mercury best at what is called greatest elongation, when it's furthest away from the sun in angle. However, this month, although it reaches elongation on the 26th of October in the evening, it's actually not really well seen, because it's well below the ecliptic, and also the ecliptic it has a very shallow angle to the horizon. So it's only about three degrees above the horizon, about half an hour or so after sunset. Well, you'll certainly need binoculars to see it, but I'm not convinced it's really worth it. Now, Mars has been around, lingering in the western sky above the horizon for some time now. And that's because it's sort of moving eastwards, counteracting the fact that uh, the sky we see every night at the same time is moving the other way. It starts the month in Libra at about magnitude plus 1.2, and in fact it rather quickly moves into Scorpius. Rather nicely, on October the 10th and the 11th, it passes just 2 degrees below the 13.5 arc-second separation double star Beta Scorpii, which is the highest star, making up the little fan tail at the back of the scorpion. That's a rather interesting star system. With a small telescope, you'll actually see two stars, but each of those is actually another three stars each. So there are six stars in total. If you've got a good telescope and the seeing is good, you should be able to separate one of those into two more components, which are three point nine arc seconds across. So that's a quite interesting time to have a look at Mars. Venus rises some hours before the Sun now, and with a magnitude close to minus 4.1, dominates the pre-dawn sky. It's in Leo, and on the third of the month, it gets exceedingly close to Regulus. Now, Regulus is a bright star itself, but Venus is about 150 times brighter. At about 8 a.m. on the third, Venus comes within eight arc minutes of Regulus, now, during the previous two days, as they get closer, one should be able to see quite a nice colour contrast between them. When they're very close, I suspect you won't see two objects. Eight arc minutes apart, theoretically we could see, but with the brightness of Venus, its flare will actually prevent us seeing regulars. But it's a good thing to look out for, it should be really good. Anyway, the angular size is dropping a bit from about 16 to 13 arc seconds during the month. As that happens... The percentage that's illuminated increases from 71 to 80%. And so the brightness hardly changes from minus 4.1 to minus 4.0. So, nice thing to look for on Venus at the beginning of October. So, what about the highlights? Well, I've just mentioned Venus being very close to Regulus on the 3rd. Between the 4th and the 7th of October, you have quite a good chance to spot a comet. It's only 10th magnitude, which isn't easy to find, but it happens to be very close to the globular cluster M5. That is in the constellation of Serpens. And on the 7th, it's no more than about 2 degrees up to the left of M5. So with a small telescope with a wide-angle eyepiece, you should be able to get both of them in the same field of view. That would be rather nice, a lovely contrast between a very really tight globular cluster, much brighter I have to say, and this rather faint little comet. You might even spot a little tail going out towards the left or the east. So that's worth looking at. I would urge you to have a look at the Night Sky page on our website. Just putting Night Sky into Google should find it. And there in fact I've got charts of all of these highlights and there's a plot showing the path of Comet C 2011 F1 linear as it tracks across the sky in serpents. Then the 7th of October there's a nice occultation of a star by the moon. It's actually rather too early in the morning to be honest about uh, 345 depending quite where you are in the UK but it's a 4.6 magnitude star Chai2 Orionis which obviously indicates it's an Orion and the waning 21 day old moon high in the southeast, will actually cover it for a time, and it's about 3.45, it will reappear beyond the dark limb. That's always a nice thing to look for, the star appearing seemingly out of nothing. So if you can get up that early and it's clear, well worth having a look at. We have two meteor showers this month. The first is called the Draconids, the Draconid Meteor Shower, and that's on the night of the 8th of October. The Earth crosses the orbit of the comet Jacobini Zinner. If it's clear... And sadly, so often we don't have clear nights when these things happen. Get a location with a good, low, northwestern horizon as darkness falls. The radiant of the shower is, as the name implies, in the constellation Draco, which is reasonably high up in elevation. Now that's where the meteors will appear to diverge from. But it's usually best to look away from that point, say 45 to 60 degrees away. So I suggest looking up towards Cassiopeia, which is just higher up in the sky above Draco. And happily, the moon at third quarter is only rising in the east, so shouldn't really prove any sort of problem in hiding the fainter meteors. On the 18th of October, Mars is near a thin crescent moon, and also above the star Antares, which is the brightest star in Scorpius. About one hour after sunset, if it's clear, good low western horizon, you should see it, below and to the right of a very thin crescent moon. The three will make a very nice sort of colour grouping. Also see if you can see what's called Earthshine, the dark part of the moon illuminated by the reflected light from the Earth. Again, I've given you a plot On the night sky page but when it's a low object in the western sky i usually have to reduce the brightness of the sky so you can actually see the objects that are there you may well need binoculars now on october 21st we have the second of the two meteor showers they're called the orionids which of course implies the radiant is in the constellation of orion it won't be too bad actually there is a moon that might possibly hide the fainter trails But it won't be too bad. The meteors, in fact, from what is called Comet Halley, they are among the fastest and enter the upper atmosphere at about 41 kilometres per second. That's pretty good. Incidentally, meteors can come into the Earth's atmosphere anywhere between naught, theoretically, and about 60 kilometres per second. Any object at the same distance as the Earth from the Sun will be travelling at about 30 kilometres per second. If a meteor comes behind us, so following the Earth, can you see the, the differential speed is very low. But if we happen to be moving towards the meteor stream, they're coming towards the Earth, then their combined speed is twice around the 30 kilometres per second that the Earth is moving. So they're really quite fast. As i said, the Moon setting in the West shouldn't really form too much of a problem. So that's two meteor showers, well worth having a look out for. So, there we go. It's actually quite an interesting month, and I do hope we have enough clear skies so you can see some of the things I've talked about.
5: Thanks
2: for that, Ian. And now here's John Field with what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere night sky.
8: Kia ora, and welcome to the October Jobcast, coming to you from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. October sees Scorpius and Sagittarius in our western sky after sunset, and by midnight these constellations will begin to set. If you have a clear, dark sky, you may see a triangular glow in the west after sunset. This glow causes a light and is caused by light reflecting off dust found along the plane of our solar system. This is most easily seen at this time of year, as the Milky Way is at right angles to the ecliptic. The weak, either side of new moon on the 16th will give you the best chance to observe it. After being visible in our evening sky for the last few months, Saturn and Spike are now low in the west and will soon be lost in our twilight sky. Mars is higher up towards Antares and the similarity in colour is easily seen. Mars is getting fainter as it moves further away from the Earth. Both Neptune and Uranus are in our evening sky, but due to their faintness they are challenging targets. We'll have to wait for the rising of Jupiter for a bright planet to be easily seen. Binoculars and small telescopes will reveal Jupiter's four largest moons which will change position from night to night. Larger telescopes reveal light and dark bands, along with other features in the planet's atmosphere. The brightest true star in our evening sky is in the southeast. This is Canopus, the second brightest star, which will climb higher into our southern night sky as the evening progresses. Whilst it is low down, this star will twinkle in colour and brightness. This will decrease as it climbs higher. Tamari Canopus atu Atutahi, the high chief of the heavens. Canopus is only outshone by Sirius, the brightest star visible in our night sky. Sirius rises in the southeast after midnight. We will then have the three brightest stars, Sirius, Canopus, and Alpha Centauri, visible along the southern Milky Way. Alpha Centauri is the brightest of the two pointer stars that point towards Crux, the southern cross. When seen with the unaided eye, Alpha Centauri appears as a single yellow star with a yellowish hue. In a small telescope, the star can be split as two separate stars, one visibly brighter than the other. One is slightly brighter than our sun, whilst the other is slightly fainter. Both orbit around each other in a period of about 80 years. Due to it being a binary star, some lists of bright stars do not have Alpha Centauri as the third brightest star, but in the unaided humanoid outshines Altruis, the next brightest star. The Southern Cross, Crux, can be found in the southwestern sky not far from Alpha Centauri after sunset. During the evening it will get progressively lower and it will be closest to the horizon around midnight. From New Zealand, crux will never set. Travelling along the Milky Way from the pointers and Crux we come to the bright haze in the Milky Way. Called the Carina Nebula, it is a vast star-forming region about 8,000 light-years away. This cloud is brighter and covers four times the area in the sky than the more famous Great Nebula in Orion, yet it's six times further away. A far more challenging nebula for us in the Southern Hemisphere can be found in the rather sparse section of the North-Eastern sky. Here we find a group of four stars forming the Great Square of Pegasus. They form the body of a winged horse. Pegasus was the mount used by the hero Perseus to save Andromeda from a sea monster called Cetus. For lucky more northerly Southern Hemisphere observers, a great galaxy in Andromeda can be spotted rising around midnight. Here in Wellington you need a dark sky and a clear northern horizon to spot this galaxy. I could observe this galaxy from my suburban backyard until a neighbour's tree grew too high. In binoculars it appears the haze slightly brighter than the background sky. Due to its large size, wide-filled telescopes are needed to observe this galaxy. This galaxy is estimated to contain one trillion stars, over twice the number estimated in our galaxy. Although it may contain more stars, recent studies reveal that our galaxy has more mass, with a much larger composition of dark matter than the Andromeda galaxy. Andromeda was a key player in solving the great debate of April 1920 as to whether our galaxy was the entire universe, and were these spiral nebulae new stars in the process of forming, or were they actually galaxies separate from us and each other? Neither theory could be confirmed until more conclusive evidence was forthcoming. This evidence was supplied by the observation of Cepheid variable stars by Edwin Hubble, that revealed the Andromeda galaxy was in fact over a million light years away. This proved that our galaxy is just one of many other island universes in a much larger universe. In 1989, the first potential extrasolar planet was discovered in Pegasus, but due to its uncertainties, it was not until 2011 that it was confirmed as a planet and not a brown dwarf. By which time, many others have been discovered, and the current total has risen to 834. Additionally, the Kepler spadecraft has now discovered over 2,000 planetary candidates. I wonder what that number will be in October 2013. Next month offers us the rare opportunity to observe a solar eclipse from New Zealand and Australia. For northern Australia, a total eclipse will be seen. Observers on either side of this path will see a partial eclipse. We wish all our listeners clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory.
6: Thanks for that, John. And Claire for the editing. Now on to the feedback. Okay, first off, we've got some post. Woo! Woo!
0: (laughs) As as you know we get very excited when we have actual posts. So first off we have a postcard from Andrew Thomas sent from the Ring of Brodgar, a ring of Neolithic standing stones in the Orkney Islands. And Andrew fancies hearing a section on archaeoastronomy, which sounds like a really fascinating topic. I don't know if we've got anyone around the department that has any expertise in that area, but we we will find out because that would be very cool to do.
2: I think there were there was a couple of people at last year's NAM, so we should oh, cool. we should try and accost them next year. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be really good, yeah.
0: And also Jane in Phoenix has sent us a great bit of post she sent us a full calendar of Arizona she she also sent a letter with this saying that um, as a young man her husband was uh, there was an attempt made to persuade him by dr Kuiper of Kuiper belt fame to uh, for Jane's husband to pursue astronomy uh, he declined but as he re- has remained an amateur astronomer with a telescope he bought when he was just a paper boy
6: and in the email, uh, thanks to Hamza
2: Munir and Bill White for their feedback. As always, thank you for the likes on Facebook. Special thanks go to Bill Kenway for his question on the Pencil Nebula, so we'll pass that on to the uh, to uh, asking astronomer. Also, thanks for the tweets and Follow Fridays on Twitter, as usual. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via
0: the website at
2: www.jodcast.net on the forum at forum.jodcast.net. At Twitter, at twitter.com slash Jodcast. On Facebook, at facebook.com forward slash Jodcast. On YouTube, at youtube.com forward slash Jodcast.
6: At Flickr, at flickr.com forward slash groups slash Jodcast.
2: And don't forget,
0: you can send us normal, regular post, and the address is on the website. Well, all that remains to be done is to thank Dr. David Jess and Dr. David Moss for the interviews. The editors were Christina Smith, Mark Pervert, Liz Guzman, and George Bendo. The producer was Dan Thornton. So until next time, Georgia.